The Deeper Dig is sponsored by Casella. Let's recycle better together. Be sure to empty and clean recyclables. When in doubt, throw it out. Americans toss far too many non-recyclable items in their recycling bins. It adds up and hurts recycling programs. Learn what belongs in your blue bin at casella.com slash recycle better. Let's recycle better together. From VT Digger, I'm Riley Robinson. This is The Deeper Dig. It's the middle of July, and the temperature is hovering in the mid-80s. But Buzz Fervor is still keeping the heat on in this greenhouse some nights. You can leave that open. We need the, we need the air. All on the ground, there's grafted seedlings, bandaged in waxed plastic. You make a long, sloping cut on this one and put them together. Buzz is just finishing up his grafting for the season, attaching cuttings from one plant onto another. Heat helps the cuts to heal. Various styles of graft. That's called a bark graft, there's whip and tongue, there's cleft graft, there's banana graft, there's saddle graft, there's a barn door graft, side veneer graft. Under the bits of plastic, the cambium wood grows over the cut, like a scab. That's the healing tissue. It's non-specific tissue at the time it's healing. In this case, it's becoming bark. Cambium can become wood, it can become root, or it can become bark. It can grow those three things. And so when you're making cuttings or grafts, you have this thing called callus, which is the non-specific cambium healing. And the, the two pieces, if you put the cambiums, if you match the cambiums together on the rootstock and the what we call scion wood, child, those two cambiums, if they're the same genus and or species, they'll heal together. And so the tree just keeps going, keeps growing. Buzz owns Perfect Circle Farm, which sits on 45 acres near the Berlin airport. I turn off the road onto a gravel driveway. There's a barn with a large wind chime. And down a small incline, there's a few greenhouses and some tables covered in buckets of plants. Past the ends of rows of trees is the Worcester Range. Out in the field, a flock of chickens hang out under a silver maple. Buzz planted it a few years ago, specifically so the chickens would have some shade. Along the gravel driveway, there's pawpaw seedlings, tagged by type. Shenandoah, mango, pina colada, Rebecca's gold. I guess it's good we have the chickens because the trees are mostly silent. Buzz sells fruit and nut trees, both to home gardeners and to other farms. I just planted like 40 really nice grafts of nut trees. And then pretty much all these plantings here are nut trees with a few persimmon and pawpaw thrown in. There's chestnuts and then oaks and then more oaks, more chestnuts, some hazelnut, and a whole row of uh, ultra northern pecan seedlings. And then you come up here, you know, you have all the, up here's the fruit trees. There's a plums, cherries, pears. Blueberries, blueberries, bush cherries, and then it starts getting into the mixed, more hickories and, and uh, chestnuts and things like that. Some of what Buzz grows is unusual for Vermont's climate, and that's kind of his thing. 
Central Vermont is Zone 4 on the U.S. Department of Agriculture's map that shows which plants grow best in what regions. Zone 4 means it's too cool for a number of plants. Buzz has a personal mission. He wants to cultivate a hardy persimmon that will grow in Vermont. And as a sidebar for the people like me who have never tried a persimmon, it's an orange sweet fruit. The actual Latin name of persimmon is diasporos, which means the food of the gods. That's, how, that's what people think about them. They're so delicious. And you can't, American persimmons, when they're ripe and perfect and food of the gods, they're so soft. They're like, I mean, they're so soft. They're like mush. They're like just barely together. And they have to fall from the tree. You can't pick them. You pick them on the tree, they're going to be astringent. You know what astringent is? A pucker you up. So they're very astringent until they're perfectly ripe. And when they fall, usually they crack. They, there's, the people put hay and straw, big mounds under the trees so that the fruit can fall. I don't. Buzz has planted thousands of persimmon seeds. It's like he's rolling the genetic dice. Out of thousands of plants, some of them will have that right combination of traits to survive Vermont winters. So I have already planted 15,000 persimmon from seed, not counting this year's four or 5,000, and have called through them for hardiness, which is the first, you know, the first tier of will they survive here? And a lot of them will survive, but, but a lot of them burn in winter, which means they, they freeze and die. Mm -hmm. So they'll freeze down, they'll freeze back. And out of 15,000, there may be um, 50 that don't seem to die back at all. This past year, only one survived the winter. I asked him why he's so intent on this. Why he keeps planting all these seeds, despite the odds. Why, why do you do this with the persimmons? If you get one out of all of this work, it's like really against the odds. Legacy. Tell me more. Well, I want to be Buzz Ferber, the guy that brought persimmons to Zone 4, you know? <laughs> For Buzz, this is about more than just persimmons. He has a larger vision. Buzz is cultivating a collection of fruit and nut plants, mostly trees, that will grow well in Vermont's climate. It's part history project, part science project. He tracks down old plants and seeds from past generations of breeders and brings them to his farm. Like as I've said, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So there are still a few people alive and many people that are gone whose work is there who made a lot of crosses and kept decent records. And so that material is there. So I'm mining that, right? And um, I'm principally a seed grower. So I go to the best orchards from the best collections of the best people that have ever done this work. He combs through the records from the Northern Nut Growers Association, a group that has met annually since 1910. But Buzz said he also uses social media to track down old trees. Yeah, because on social media, and specifically on Facebook, there are all kinds of groups. Like there's a chestnut group, there's a hickory, there's multiple hickory groups, there's multiple pawpaw groups, there's probably five or eight. There's tons of pawpaw groups on Facebook. This is also his own protest against some modern farming practices that require tilling and replanting the soil every year. So that's what I'm doing here, is I'm trying to create a repository of Zone 4 hardy plants so that if we ever need here in Vermont to have like, oh, we need to plant you know, thousands of acres of nut trees um, to eat, um, we'll have them. 
So this is like a climate project. It is a climate project. That's exactly what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm making a germplasm here for climate change. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And I'm guising that in a nursery that I sell plants on the internet. <laughs> right? So I, I make enough money selling plants, These all these plants. Climate change is already impacting what buzz can grow here. Ten years ago, the USDA adjusted its zone maps. On this map, higher temperatures get higher zone numbers and lower temperatures get lower zone numbers. So Miami, Florida is a 10. Central Vermont is zone 4. When the USDA published these updates in 2012, it was the first time any part of Vermont was rated warmer at zone 5. First off, climate change is in nobody's favor, including trees, because that kind of change... That's, that's, that's disaster. That's like meteor hitting the planet kind of change. So, but because of climate change, I may have better luck growing plants here that historically wouldn't grow here. Mm-hmm. So pecan, for instance, is a great one. If you talk to all the, all the people that know more about pecans than, than I ever will, they'll tell me, and they have told me, you will never get pecan. You will never get a crop of pecans where you live. Have you? Well, not yet, but... He's been doing his own analysis, comparing heating and cooling patterns in central Vermont and Buffalo, New York, where people are growing ultra-northern pecans. Buzz thinks ultra-northern pecans will be able to grow in Vermont, if not yet, then soon. But in focusing on trees and bushes, Buzz is also looking to an entirely different kind of agriculture. Trees don't need to be replanted every year. They're perennials. So there's no tilling, and they're not really dependent on yearly fertilizer. It helps keep the soil intact. Other crops can grow below the trees, and animals could graze on the underbrush. The looming climate crisis is like really being ignored, radically ignored. And so at some point, it might be essentially essential that we replace 200 million acres of corn with trees that produce enough food. They They may not produce as much per acre as corn does right now with yearly plowing, uh, management with glyphosate, Roundup, and incredible fertilization. You know, all fertilizer is made from oil. So we're basically pumping fossil fuels into the soil to support massive cropping, rather than saying, hey, how do we design a system that will produce as many calories, as much protein, using perennial crops that we plant once every 100 or 150 years. There's no tilling, there's no glyphosate, there's no fertility, or very little bit of fertility. You can graze animals underneath of them. They'll feed your farm animals, they'll help you raise pigs, chickens, and cows. Some people might call this permaculture, but actually Buzz doesn't really like or use the term. He emphasizes that this isn't some trendy thing that needs a new name, because indigenous peoples have practiced this kind of stewardship and non-extractive growing for generations. So permaculture is a white appropriation of what was happening mm. prior to the white people rolling in here. So I don't like to say permaculture. I like to not really name it. Sometimes he describes this approach as agroforestry, creating an edible forest or a farm forest. Other organizations like the Land Institute, based in Kansas, are engineering perennial grains like wheat that doesn't need to be replanted. I wanted to understand the scope of this, where people are pushing the science and practice of perennial crops. So I called Vern Grubinger at UVM Extension. There are lots of perennial crops we already grow and eat that are you know, widespread around the world. Tree fruits, obviously, berries, asparagus, rhubarb, 
So this is nothing new. Fern is a vegetable and berry specialist. He's also the director of a USDA grant program that funds sustainable agriculture projects across the Northeast. I think the challenging aspect is when there's an effort to convert something that's been grown as an annual crop to a perennial crop or to find very similar alternatives. So the Land Institute has been working on developing perennial grains that would allow for systems that don't require tillage and all of the you know downsides that do come with annual crop production because generally you're stirring up the soil to create a seedbed, which means you have the potential for erosion. Um, there's less you know permanent roots and carbon in the soil. And so, yeah, there's a lot to be said for leaving the soil alone and being able to get your food. I mentioned Buzz's work to Vern and said one of the things that struck me is that Buzz is just sort of doing this on his own. He never went to college, but he's learned from mentors and reading and his own research. He doesn't have the backing of a university. He's just doing this on his 45-acre farm in Berlin. How common is that? Like where... Who is pushing the needle, as you said? Is it academic institutions? Is it just individual growers? Is it, where is this happening in Vermont? That's a very deep question with a complex answer because you're really asking where does innovation come from? There's different skill sets that are super complementary to figuring stuff out. The people on the ground growing things, the farmers, the growers have, you know, observation and experience <laughs> over anything academics will have there growing these things every day and learning all the nuances. Sometimes it's the other way around. Something's discovered by academics, often in part because growers bring something up like, hey, I've got this problem. You guys should look at it. Vern said it's pretty common for ideas and questions to flow back and forth between growers and academics. Growers are always trying to yield more or better quality or different produce. He said nobody was even growing sweet potatoes in Vermont until about 30 years ago. But Vern did mention some bigger trends. Over time, a lot of seed development has consolidated under large corporations. There used to be a lot of breeding programs at public universities, and most of those are gone. Cornell's done, still has some going, and they they did a lot of breeding back in the day. And, um, you know, there's some famous cucumber varieties came out of there and um, certainly apples. There was a lot of grape breeding done in Minnesota for cold, cold varieties, Um, peaches up in Canada, you know, tomatoes at Rutgers. They were pretty famous for some of their good flavor tomato. Fern described this kind of symbiotic relationship between universities and businesses and farms. Campbell's Soup used to use the Rutgers tomato, bred by Rutgers plant scientists in the 1930s. Local growers then supplied lots of the tomatoes that Campbell's used to make soup. So some of it is those universities bred things that were, you know, grown by their farmers in their area and usually processed by some company that was a big market for those growers. So it made sense to work on that. In 1930, Congress passed the Plant Protection Act, which enabled breeders to patent their plants. This is one reason a lot of seed development has moved into the private sector. Vern said there's also been a trend of decreasing investment in public universities to do this kind of plant research and development. When I talked with Vern and with Buzz, both of them placed current interest in perennial crops into a wider sweep of history. 
agriculturally evolved and it certainly post you know world war ii came to a very intensive place with like even not post post world war one really the invention of the tractor and you know tons of tillage and that led to the dust bowl and then after world war ii was more tons of chemicals and that led to you know silent spring and an awareness of like whoa these things are way more dangerous than people <laughs> were paying attention to so the dust bowl was a wake-up call of like whoa if you just till the daylights out of soil all the time really bad things happen the the dust bowl in the post-world war ii it sounds like a cycle of human created problems human solved problems on and off you know solved solved is a big word <laughs> It's an ongoing challenge to grow food in a way that minimizes environmental impact. And the other thing is, you know, it's continuous learning, right? We do things and then we find out, oh, it had a consequence we didn't think of. Vermont is full of fantastic farmers who are part of this long history of stewardship and trying to do it better. Buzz is completely sold out of everything this season, except for some seeds. He said he ships to nearly every state, including Alaska, but not Hawaii. He had a burst in orders when the pandemic started as more people got into gardening at home. You cannot buy a grafted pawpaw right now. Can't. Can't. Prices have doubled. People are like, boom. Now that Buzz is pretty much done with grafting, things at the nursery will be a little slower paced for the next month or so. Then in September, as chestnuts and hickories start falling off tree limbs, he'll travel around the country tracking down seeds. Then he'll bring them back to his farm. He said some of the people posting in these Facebook groups have found some really good trees and don't even realize it. Don't realize how much work went into grafting and cultivating them. He told me about some chestnuts that he went out to see in Pennsylvania. I was trying, I tried for three or four or five years to go there, could never get time. It's in right outside of, right outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I finally went, I'm going, I don't care, I'm going. The people were like, oh yeah. They had, they literally raked the nuts up into giant piles and throw them over the bank. They're a pain, they're, they're hard to mow around, they're all over the grass, we hate these things. <laughs> Many people feel that way about chestnuts because they have a spiny burr. Someone else from New Jersey posted about a patch of trees out behind a botanical garden, which turned out to be grafted nut trees from the 1920s. So I'm like, I'll be down there in a month, you know? <laughs> On my way. <laughs> I pass right through there. I pass within 10 minutes of that place every time I go south to do the nut, nut and signwood gathering. And did you go get some? Oh, God, yeah. We grafted them all up. listening to The Deeper Dig, a podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up on new episodes. This week, we used music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Mike Doherty for mixing this show. I'm Riley Robinson. See you soon.